I'm sure you're all um, recovering from shock because when you saw me, it looked like I was about 40, 45. And now that you're finding out that I'm 65, you, you want to know my secrets, and I'll be glad to share them with you um, back at the back afterward. <laughs> um, the picture that you see in front of you uh, is the picture of my wife. I, I, I almost always show that picture because uh, when she can't come along with, um, I want folk to know that um, um, I have a, a beating physical heart and then I have a, I have a soul and she indeed is my soul. And uh, we've known each other for 44 years, been married for 42. And um, I don't usually say this when she's here because she gets kind of embarrassed, but she's the hottest 62 year old I've ever seen. And when I look at her, I, I see her like she was when I met her when she's 18. And we've been through a whole lot together. Um, many times in our marriage, we weren't sure whether it was going to continue forward. But there's something about um, walking together through those kinds of valleys that take you to a deep, deep place of love that you really um, aren't sure you could ever get to. And so, um, yeah, that's my friend Carla. So thank you for letting me introduce her to you. I do want to say that uh, I'm so delighted to be with you today, and I know that sounds like speaker talk. I get that, but I'm an eight on the Enneagram, and we, we just say what we think. So um, when I say I'm delighted, I mean I'm delighted to finally meet some of the community of my friend uh, and pastor, Peter Hong. And I, I have one request of you this morning as, as we move forward. Because you don't know me and I don't know you, and you know, it's it just, it's, isn't it strange the way churches are set up? I mean, the church I pastored for the last 16 years is set up very similarly to this and built about the same time. And you know, we're looking at the back of each other's heads and there's a big gap between me and you and I'm kind of up and you're kind of down. And I understand acoustics, I understand communication and all of that, but um, you know, it, just, it's, it serves to distance us, doesn't it? I mean, you already don't know me, so why would you want to hear anything that I have to say this morning. And so let me just say, uh, let me tell you who I am today. I'm you. Please don't make me a talking head today. I have the same hopes and dreams and fears uh, and struggles. Um, this past week, one of my daughters, we were waiting on some medical news and it turned out to be positive, but, but we know how the world works. We know how it is. We're in a spiritual war, we're in a battle. And so, um, you know, this week, I mean, I was sobbing over the phone just a couple nights ago just to hear this good news, which could have potentially been disastrous for our family. So I'm you. And so as you hear me this morning, please um, don't hear me as a talking head. What I want to share with you this morning comes from deep, deep places in my heart and, and in my journey um, over the last 65 years of being on the planet. So what I'd like to talk to you about this morning, it comes from the, some of the last words of Jesus, and you'll see this uh, on your screen. Uh, the night before he was crucified, these are the words, some of the words that, that he spoke. And they're found in John 13. They'll be on your screen. Find them on your phone or, or a copy of the text if you have one. And this is what Jesus said to, um, at this point, the 11 that were remaining. Judas had already gone out to do his thing. And he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you will also love one another because by this, by this, 
by that love that you share, without even taking it outside the church walls yet, by the love that you share within, um, the whole world will know. He didn't say the whole world would believe, but they'll see, they'll know that you're with me. And then he goes on in John 17, as you know, four, three or four chapters further, he prays this prayer. And, and he says to the Lord, Father, I pray that you might allow these folk that I've just said, please, my command is that you above all things love one another as I have loved you. Let them do so, Father, because if they will love each other like that, they'll stay as one. And then the world will see that unity that they can see nowhere else on the planet. And they'll, listen to this, he says, and they'll know that I come from God. We don't, we don't need to know every answer to every apologetic question. We don't need to be able to speak into every situation with some kind of all-consuming knowledge. What Jesus said is, what we have to do is to love one another because then the world will see. Now, my sense is um, the, the, the Church of Jesus is starting to get this. My sense is, obviously, new community because of, of who you are and your mission statement and trying to be a, uh, what did N.T. Wright say at one point? He said there were, whole, there were many uh, uh, clubs and guilds in the ancient world, but there was only one group claiming to be a whole new version of the human race. That's what you all are about here, as I understand, and as I'm seeing this morning. And so you get that the world really isn't looking to come in on Easter Sunday morning and to see some kind of flying Jesus and, you know, camels walking across the stage. That's all well and good, and I, I'm not down on that. I mean, I've seen some pretty cool stuff in my day. But I'm so offended when, even with a movie like The Passion of the Christ, which was an amazing uh, depiction of, of what our Savior went through, I heard people say, this is our last best chance to show Jesus to the world. Are you kidding me? Because Jesus said, if we'll just love, and, and of course the love that he's talking about here isn't phileo. Phileo is a good kind of love. That's philos love. The noun form is, is philos, the verb form is phileo. It's, it's the Greek word from which we get the word Philadelphia, of course. It means brotherly love. There's nothing wrong with that kind of love. It's a good kind of love. It's a kind of love that basically says, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. You know, let, let's go hit a Cub game and I'll buy the tickets and, and you buy the beer or, or Coke if you don't uh, drink beer or whatever. You, you, know, you do something for me, I'll do something for you. That's a good kind of love. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He, he's talking about this word agape, which really wasn't that popular in the ancient world. The Christian church kind of adopted it to be its own word. And, it, and it's defined something like this. Agape means to make a decision to act sacrificially. It always costs us. On behalf of another, it's not about us anymore. Whether they deserve it or not, to make a decision, you gotta to choose to act always about doing, sacrificially it's gonna cost on behalf of another, not about us, whether they deserve it or not. Now if they deserve it, we're still in philos land. And the minute, you know, they, they don't start giving us what we're looking for, then we have to go somewhere else or we are going to stop loving. This is what happens, for example, in racial disunity today in the church, you know, we know we've got to come together. The Latino community and the black community and the Puerto Rican community, the Mexican community and the Japanese community and the Korean community and every way that the enemy has divided us, the Caucasian community, we've got to come together and we're all about it. We see it in the word, we get in the room and then we start hearing the same old stuff, feeling the same old ways 
And at some point, if agape doesn't kick in, we're out the door, man. We ain't got time. It's like, I love you with philos, but I'll see you in glory with agape. And again, I think the church is getting this. We're, we're starting to realize that the world has the same kind of wounds that we have. Our non-believing friends don't really have to have all the answers to all the questions to believe in Jesus Christ. But what they have to have, what they have to see is, is there something in us that communicates to them that there's hope for the, the relational division in their own world, the division in, in their marriages, the division between, you know, we can't even get along with the guy that lives next to us who, who, who drives, you know, puts a rut in our yard. We can't even get along with our neighbors. We're, we're separated from our children. We're estranged from our sisters and our brothers. And we've got so many relational wounds. They're the deepest wounds. We can get another job. But what happens when a when a relationship is divided, when there's a fissure that breaks our hearts, they want to know, do we have anything to address that pain? I think of, I think of the, um, the Beatles song, 1966. Yes, I was alive then. I was, I was a little boy. Look at all the lonely people. Where do they all come from? Look at all the lonely people. Where do they all belong? I think we're getting it. I think we're getting it. But this is what I think we have wrestled with. But we've got to call it out. We can't just keep wrestling. We have to call it out and do something about it. And it's this. What we still secretly struggle with is the phrase, as I have loved you. Because my brothers and sisters, we cannot give away what we're not receiving. And, and for, for, for whatever reason, it seems that we just make this assumption. Well, we know John three sixteen for God so loved the world. So that, that means folk who are sitting in church who are saved, if you will, who have believed in Jesus, we get it. We don't just believe in him. We know that he loves us. And I have found that to be absolutely not true. Let, let, let me ask you to be gut level honest this morning. And the reason I say that is because isn't it true, even in a church like New Community, that we can be sometimes more honest on the street than we, when we come in the building because we don't want people to know what's going on inside. So let's just be as honest as we can be this morning. If I ask you this morning, if we could pause time and I could go around to each of you individually and just get on my knees and look you right in the eye and just say, do you know, do you experience not just in your left brain where you know Bible verses about, but do you feel, do you experience the love of God in Christ for you? My brother and my sister, what would you say? It, it's amazing to me. It, if, we, if we said today, what relationship that is important to you, that you, you think is about love, do you just want to hear words about love? Every relationship that we have that is important to us, it's about love. We want to feel the love, except with God. We think it's okay if we just know words from a book. My oldest daughter, Andrea, is 36 years old, just, just an amazing daughter of God. 
so proud of the strong, beautiful, compelling human being that she has become. But if I said to her, baby, how did you know that I loved you when you were little? And she said, well, when I was seven years old, you were traveling, but you sent me a birthday card. And the birthday card, it said, Andrea, happy birthday. Sorry I couldn't be with you. I love you. And so the way I know that you love me, Dad, is that I carry that birthday card around in my back pocket so that when I doubt whether you love me, I pull it out and I read the words. Now, are the words important? Of course they're important. But I would know that if she didn't know my love because of more than just words, there wouldn't be enough to sustain our relationship. So just a, a little bit about my own story. Because I came to this place in my journey because of my own personal story, not because of what I read here, although later on, so much of this made more sense. But my personal journey, I trusted Christ when I was five. I grew up in a Christian home, but it was a jacked up Christian home. How many of us know that you can be believers in the home, but be incredibly unhealthy and dysfunctional? And so, um, I went off to, you know, I was a good little youth group boy. I did what I was supposed to do. I went to Taylor University, a Christian university in central Indiana. I played football, became an All-American, not because I was very good, but what I found out later is because I was so angry inside. Went off to Dallas Theological Seminary, went, quit, got married, went back. By the time I got done, I had total, I had five and a half years of Greek, two years of Hebrew, three years of Latin, all trying to somehow get this book in my head, in my heart, so that I could somehow um, walk with Christ. But I found out at one point that I was like a travel agent handing out brochures to places I'd never been. You, you, go to Tahiti. You ever been there? No, but look at the pictures. There were signs. There were signs. I didn't see them until I, I got married, and, and we were like the Barbie and Ken of our community, and so we were supposed to be that couple that gets married, and then you just kind of sail off into the Christian sunset and kind of do the Christian thing. And, and six months into our marriage, and I got to just say, I feel compelled to tell you this, but I'm so ashamed to tell you this, especially the sisters here this morning, and I, I pray that you won't that you'll know that I'm not that guy anymore. I pray that you'll know that. But at one point in time in our relationship, this beautiful, strong woman of God has become my soul. I can't blame it on this, but, but baggage out of my background. And one day we were, you know, I was like six foot two, 225 pounds. Actually, that's what I am today. But back then it was kind of like up here a little bit more, if you know what I'm talking about. We were living in this little 10 by 40 mobile home and she got up in my business. And for the only time in our marriage, thank God, I put my hands on her and all weightlifting, benching, whatever. I mean, I pushed her across the room. She found herself on her backside that night and started to sob. And she just said, I want to go home. There was something so 
desperately wounded and empty inside. Thank God the next morning I was getting prayed over by elders and the next day I was in a therapist's office. By the way, brothers and sisters too, but brothers, the best thing we can do in our relationship, especially in our marriages and our families and our homes, is own your stuff. Own your stuff. Stop pointing fingers. There might be something out there as well, but what's going on inside you? Started my, started my healing journey. And then, and then we had kids and then we would sit around. We had this big lazy boy chair that we eventually had to get rid of, not because it broke down, but because that chair became so nasty with all the Cheerios and the, and the, 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 the honey and the goop. Raise your hand if you know what kind of chair I'm talking about, that you have one of these chairs. Throw it out, man, throw it out. We finally literally put it on the curb, but my little girls had three daughters and they would just sit around me on my lap and on the arm of the chair and on my shoulders. And we would watch um, Fred Rogers. And he would, he would say this, these words, you know these words. Um, it's you I like. It's not the things you wear, it's not the way you do your hair, but it's you I like. The way you are right now, the way deep down inside you, not the things that hide you, not your diplomas and your awards and your accolades. They're just beside you. It's you I like. Every part of you. And I would sit there and I would weep. And you know how kids can be. My daughters would go, hey, daddy's crying. And they would touch my tears to make sure they were real. Are you crying, Daddy? What's wrong? And honest to goodness, my brothers and sisters, I had a master's degree at that point. I had no idea what was going on inside me. Today I know I wanted someone to say those words to me. The little boy that still lived down inside of this grown-up Christian pastor guy with all that knowledge. I wanted somebody to tell me they didn't just love me, but they liked me. I wanted God to say those words to me. And I, I knew them here, but I didn't know them here. And then finally, in 1990, at the age of 36, I got so desperate that one night after another speaking engagement and more applause, which at that point was just going inside me and running right out the bottom of my feet into the sewer and back to hell, where it came from. I, I, I was coming back home and I was within a, a mile of my three little babies and my best friend in our home and I came within a gnat's eyelash of taking my own life. And I went home and I got on my knees. I mean, literally, God passed my baby's faces in front of my face and I jerked the wheel back, went home and I was shaken, as you might imagine, and I fell on my face and I said, what is going on? I have everything, but inside I've got nothing. And slowly but surely, my good father began to come toward me in many different ways to let me know, what you don't know, son, is how much I love you. Take my hand and let's start walking home. So here's the bottom line, my brothers and sisters. Paul, Paul takes, by the way, Jesus' words, and he, he says it like this, and Ephesians chapter 3, which is the pinnacle of Ephesians theology. We, we tend to get stuck in evangelical circles on Ephesians 2. Some great stuff. For by grace you are saved through faith. Are you kidding me? That's good stuff. But the pinnacle of Paul's thought is in Ephesians 3 where he prays. I'm praying to the father of, of all humanity. 
praying for my brothers and sisters, not only in Ephesus, but that will be here today at New Community, that you might be rooted, agricultural term, drive them deep, grounded, architectural term, build the foundation of your life upon the love of Christ. That love that is so wide and high and deep and long, that, that Paul's Greek there is all jumbled up and jagged because he's so passionate he can hardly get the words down on the parchment. He says, because if you know that love, you'll be filled with all the fullness of God. And of course, the opposite of fullness is, it's not a hard question, emptiness. And that emptiness is a vacuum that demands to be filled. And so to the extent today, my brothers and sisters, this is what I've come to believe, that we don't experience and know the love of Christ. That's the extent to which we're empty, the extent to which that piece of us is a vacuum pulling from around us, trying to get filled with stuff that will never fill us up. Where I pastored for the last 16 years, a very, very tough neighborhood in Detroit, it was, you know, crack and heroin, alcohol, I mean alcohol that would just saturate a brother or a sister to the point that they literally never came down from their high. Just continued one more, one more 40 ounce or just might fill me up. In other communities it might be, if I just get another degree, if my kids can just accomplish what I couldn't accomplish. And so we find ourselves feeling all these feelings because it no longer is it even about the kids, is it? It's about what the kids are doing for us. Sometimes, my brothers and sisters, it's even Jesus that we get addicted to. We don't know about loving him, and so we're just asking him to do something for us. Maybe it's the church, and so we work 90 hours a week at Christian stuff. I'm not saying that if you work that much at Christian stuff, you're empty. I'm just saying I've, it can happen even with the good things. They become a bad thing because they try to be the main thing. Satan's big lie, my brothers and sisters, today is that God does not love you because he knows to the extent that we believe that lie, our emptiness will keep us. Heck, we, we can't even love one another at that point because in my relationship with another, it's all about what that person can do to fill me up, not what I have to give out of the overflow of what my father is giving to me. Anthony DeMello, a very well-known Jesuit priest, I think he's gone now, said it like this, your life begins not when you know you love God, but when you begin to believe that he loves you. So, let me just turn this corner and say, I think we have to spend just a couple of moments kind of doing a little personal journey inside our own hearts. Maybe you already are, but maybe, maybe what I'm gonna share next will help a little bit. Because what I've found to be true is sometimes when we're sitting here listening to this kind of material, we'll, te we'll tend to go like this with the person sitting next to us. Hope you're listening. <laughs> or maybe we're thinking of the person we wanna call when we get out of here because we know their emptiness. And, but I'm just gonna to ask today, what about us? 
So just quickly, look at these signs, symptoms, if you will, of emptiness. And, and what I'm going to give you here, they don't come out of a book. They come out of my life. So, for example, here's a sign. If you struggle to know who you are today, you struggle with identity. When you get into a room, you feel like you become everybody because you're not sure who you are. Because it's hard for you to hear the voice of the Father saying, you're my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. In fact, it gets to the point sometimes when we literally hate ourselves. Are you kidding me? People in the body of Christ that say they believe in Jesus, they, they hate themselves? I sure did. With all of my accomplishments, I had a deep self-loathing inside. It's kind of hard to own that, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine coming in this morning, you're in the foyer and one of your sisters or brothers from New Community says, how you doing today? Good, I hate myself, but otherwise I'm fine. Who do you even say that to? But what if today would be a day where you could own that that's my truth? But this guy's telling me I don't have to live that way anymore. Because you have a God who loves you with all of his heart. What about this one? Tormented by voices from childhood where we're supposed to learn about the love of God. Deuteronomy 6, the great Shema of Israel. Teach them to love me because I love them. Teach them the commandments in the context of my love with them. You can read it. That's recited, by the way, twice a day in conservative Jewish communities, even to this day, because it's the essence of their faith. There's one God, and he loves us. Parents, tell your kids, he loves you. And, and what he wants is for you to love him in return. But what if... Mom and dad don't understand it. They can't give us what they don't have. And so we get whatever we get. And so we grew up with voices in our head. There's a group, I don't know if they still exist, but they're a group of social workers called Heart to Heart. And they used to go around and talk to kids who had no one else to talk to and say, if you're alone in the world, you can write us, you can call us. And so maybe some of these voices are your voice. I sure have found that they have been mine. Dear heart to heart, I'm so sad. My dad is an alcoholic. I love him so much. I, I get mad when he breaks promises and maybe if I'd be really good, he would stop drinking. Please help me. If we get our picture of God from our parents, how is that young man gonna not say this thing? If I would just be good enough, maybe God would. How about this one? My name is Darren. I'm in the middle school. I'm in middle school. This is the worst year of my life. I hate school and my parents think I don't try, but I do. I started drinking beer. It's the only time I feel okay. Dear God, why did God make a dumb person? Or dear heart to heart, why did God make a dumb person? P.S. I am the dumb person. Some of us heard that message when we were nine and we're 49 today and we still have that false belief tooling around in our brain. What if you began to believe today that the voice of God calling you his beloved son or daughter resting deep within your heart could begin to heal that voice so that you could begin to come home and live free? 
I always hesitate to read from this book that I wrote because I think sometimes people might think, you know, you're, you're just trying to market your material. And again, if you knew me, I'm just telling you, I'm, I'm about the worst marketer on the planet. And let me just say, it's just not who I am. But I, I just want you to hear a piece of this story about one young lady from our community named Sophia. And this young woman, by the way, she's soaring now. She's soaring because of the love of God in Christ. This was a piece of her chapter. It would be great if we believed it when someone told us, hey, God loves you. Then that love would land in our hearts and heal us and fill us up and we could spend the rest of our lives being loved and loving everyone around us. If only we could hear the voice of God calling us his beloved. If we could just hear that voice and feel that love, we would absolutely be healed. But that voice is the most difficult voice to hear. Why? Well, of course, because of all the other voices. I've never been nothing but a crackhead hoe. That's what Sophia Wyatt said when she sat down with me one night to tell me her story. That's what she believed about herself for more than 20 years because that's what the voices told her. Like the voice of her wife-beating, womanizing father who drank away all his money and left the family with nothing most nights. Or the voices of the various pimps and a multitude of Johns who used her until all she could hear was, I'm trash, I must be trash. Why else would all these men treat me like trash? One night, by the way, she turned some tricks for some money and the men, um, she got so high after she bought her drugs, they threw her in the dumpster. She woke up in a dumpster with the television cameras on her. Her mama saw her on the late night news and came down and, and took her home. Many of us have these same kinds of voices whispering and some days shouting at us, you'll never be enough. Who do you think you're fooling? Don't you get it? You are nothing. The voice might be the specter of our dad or our mom, a grandparent, a teacher, a pastor or a coach, a former boss or a best friend, or even our entire seventh grade class. We ought to be able to skip middle school, by the way. At least that's my vote. Sometimes it's not even an actual voice, but the lack of a voice, like the dad who might be a decent human being but never tells his daughter that she's strong or beautiful or rarely tells his son that he is proud of him. Never hearing those words from a parent says clearly to a child, you're not worth the effort it takes my heart to tell you I love you. For many of us, those shaming voices or the pain of their rejection speak so loudly that most days we simply cannot hear the voice of our God calling us his beloved. What about this one? Constantly looking for approval. Everyone wants to be encouraged. I'm talking about rolling up your sleeve and mainlining, or you can't go on because if you don't hear that voice from outside, you certainly can't hear God's voice from inside. That was me, by the way. I've preached about 5,000 sermons in my life over 35 years. And uh, I gotta tell you, for those addictive years, uh, I couldn't wait to get down and to hear somebody just tell me, just validate me, just tell me that my spot on the planet has meaning by telling me that the thing I do, which is to preach, somehow touched you so that I could feel that relief for a second until I couldn't feel it any longer. How about when we're critical of others 
many times attaching Bible verses to that criticism. Yes, I'm critical of my sister because, well, the Word of God says, come on, come on, come on. You know what the love of God does? It tenderizes us and makes us feel mercy even toward those who have wounded us. And so if we're critical, if we find ourselves being critical, usually it's because of that internal critic that has been speaking to us. I can tell when I've gone back into the far country of shame by the way I treat my wife on a daily basis. When I find myself picking at her, it's never about her. She's not perfect, but when I pick, it's not about her. It's about the emptiness inside me and the voice that's picking at me from hell. What about when we have difficulty in relationships and could it be that we're trying to get that human being to fill up the hole inside of us that only the love of Christ can fill? A solid friendship, that can be the icing, but it can never be the cake. It took 10 years of my marriage. I, I, Car finally, Carla said to me one day, what do you want from me? I didn't know, now I know. I wanted her to fill up the hole, but she couldn't. And our marriage took a drastic turn when I started to realize that God loved me, and that love began to heal the brokenness inside. How about this one? We're never at peace, constantly driven. Come on, workaholics, come on, come on. Let's own our stuff here. And I know we go, you know, it's the man. If the man wouldn't make me, come on, some, okay, sometimes it's the man or the woman in some boardroom that's saying, you gotta, but a lot of times it's that, it's that voice inside us that says you have no validity if you don't produce. And if you slow down the tormenting voices of shame that we've been talking about for a moment this morning begin to speak so loudly that we go back to our activity to keep the voices at bay. How about this one? Addictive tendencies, again, even good things like kids and excellence and the spiritual disciplines can become addictive if they're intended to fill up the hole inside us that only the love of God can fill. And I know some of you are saying, and by the way, there are about 40 more. I know some of us are probably saying, all right, fair enough, bro. But I'm fairly functional today. Yes, you are. We've been functional enough to brave this weather I was functional enough to find a parking spot. I don't know where y'all parked because I drove by signs that kind of said to me, if you park here, you will go to hell today. You cannot park here, you will go to hell. I mean, I was like, I was getting nervous in the car. So, you know, I get we're functional. We're functional. But we've been singing about a Jesus this morning that my brothers and sisters did not die to make us functional. He died to set us free. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Now I have no idea what time, but um, let me just say this, that what I would usually do at this point, if this was a retreat, because I will often give this talk as the first talk on a retreat, I would give us maybe an assignment to go and get with the Lord and just look up and say, Father, what, what, what up with what's going on here? 
but we're not on retreat. Are we on retreat, or do you have to go home after this? I think you have to go home, <laughs> and I have a plane to catch anyway, so. I think I would be cruel if I didn't say just a word about a healing path. And I hesitate to like put it in the form of a list because how can the healing of a relationship ever be just about a list? So this is a relational pathway that I want to just mention a couple of things about. And then, honestly, that's why I brought this book because if something is touching you this morning, I, I want you to have something to take with you when you go out that will say this might be at least the beginning of a guide, the Word of God, and maybe this brother who almost took his own life, his journey, the journey of these folks in the east side of Detroit, and tough, maybe it could be a bit of a guide for your own journey forward. And so let me give you the first part of my, the first piece of the list of my non-listed items, all right? The first one is about our relationship with ourselves. How about just get honest? Have courage. What does it do for us to, well, Paul says, stop lying to one another. Tell the truth to one another because you're members of one another. What if the first one another, what if our closest one another is us? You don't have to lie anymore, my brothers and sisters. You can say, I've been wrestling with this for years, or I've, I, I know the love of God in some way, but there's just some emptiness inside. I've got this addictive thing I don't want to share. I'm so full of shame. And yeah, my particular addiction that I think this morning I'm realizing I try to fill my heart up with, it's one that like uh, America applauds, and so nobody's going to really call me out. But I know, I know deep down inside, I'm, I'm using that thing which has some value to try to fill up a space and so I'm never really at peace. I have no shalom in my life because I don't know how to rest in the arms of God as he embraces me and just says, you're my beloved son, you're my beloved daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. Can you just tell yourself the truth this morning, my brothers and my sisters? It's safe here. It's as safe as any place on earth. Tell yourself the truth. The second relational movement, the second of my listed things that are not a list, don't forget, they're not a list, how about our relationship with God? How about Romans 8.15? For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. You're not under the law anymore when Jesus came. The law makes us afraid, makes us feel bound. What if we don't keep it? We get up in the morning and all we see is the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments are like, here, here we go again, another day obeying the thing which deep inside I know I really can't obey. He says, in Jesus, you didn't receive that spirit. You received the Holy Spirit of adoption that causes our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father. I don't know what you're, when you see God, when you look at God, you know, God is spirit, but when you see him, his, his face, who do you see? I think many of us see like some kind of spiritual coach, maybe a benevolent coach, but trying to cut another tenth of a second off our spiritual 40-yard dash time. Can you just give me a little more? We look at God, can you just... Give me, you're doing good, but give me more. 
And we wonder why we don't want to have our quiet times when we're already burnt the hell out. And now we go to a book and all we see out of our brokenness and our emptiness is stuff that we're not doing. Just give me a little more. For some of us, it, he's like a spiritual professor. He's always trying to give us more information. Do you know one of the most insidious heresies of this post-Reformation, post-Enlightenment era is that somehow we can educate our ways to a spiritual journey. If I just know more, if I just listen to the right, you got a better podcast, get me on that podcast list because if I can just get more content, if I could just know more information, my brothers and sisters, I knew a bunch of this and I almost, I was so rage-filled with my wife because of the damage here. I, I take responsibility for it, but the knowledge couldn't trump the wound. I don't need a cheerleader. I need a healer. I need a savior. I don't need somebody that's just saying, yeah, uh, you know, if you could just understand the way I understand the Bible, then you will, then I will what? I'll have another piece of a list. It's like we, we study the book of Romans and then God says, good, you did good, but can we, get, when, can we hit Hosea next right now? And by the way, go online and take a course in biblical Hebrew. I want you to understand the real words of the Bible. What a crock. Of baloney. I think some of us see him as a cop, you know. He's a benevolent cop, but he's just, he knows, he sees. Somebody's got to check in on us, right, to see what, what we're doing, what we don't want anybody else to know. Somebody's got to put us in check. And we wonder why we don't feel close to him. Paul says, he's none of that. He says, yes, I'm king, yes, I'm Lord, yes, I'm sovereign, but the way I want you to relate to me, son, daughter, I want you to call me Abba, which is the Aramaic term that a, a one-year-old little Hebrew child would first speak when they saw their dad. If you, if you walk the streets of Jerusalem today and see young families, you'll hear kids going, Abba, 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 Abba. It's an incredibly intimate term. And he says, he says, he says, the way God wants us to relate to him is when we see him, we cry out, Abba, Father, my Father, my Father. When my girls were little, man, something would happen, they'd get wounded. My middle daughter, who became a therapist, she was afraid of ants. We weren't sure what that was. Now we know it was the early signs of sensitivity that would carry her off to a career. But in any case, she was afraid of ants. And she would get petrified and she wouldn't run up to me and she'd lay her head on my chest and she would pour it out. And then in about five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever, she'd push away, she's done. And she'd go off to play, go off to live free. Where did she leave her pain? Where did she leave her tears? Where did she leave her fear? She left it with her Abba. What if today, this is just a relational step, what if we began to see, that's my grandson Johnny, that actually I have the same shirt on today. I only have one shirt, I'm a poor pastor. <laughs> I can't believe that, but anyway. 
we have favorite shirts even when we're 65. Um, what if this is it? What if this is it? What if we've been fed a line from hell? This is who he is. What if we took a relational, get honest, and then we took a relational step toward Abba for the first time, maybe ever. Father, I don't know you like this. I've got all kinds of images in my mind, but today I'm going to take a risk and open myself up today, Sunday, April the 14th, 2019, and I'm going to call you Father. Maybe not so much like my earthly father, but Abba, you say you love me. Christ called you Abba. I'm going to take a step toward you. Would you show me who you are? Would you show me? Would you begin to show me how much you love me? A good father will not be able to keep himself from running down the pathway to meet you. He will hike up his skirts, his ropes, putting aside his dignity and will run like the story of the prodigal son. You open yourself up like that. He will run to you and embrace you and kiss you and begin to let you know how much you are his beloved. One last non-relational step, or non-step step, relational movement. What about this verse? 1 Peter 4.8. By the way, Peter was sitting there in John 13. He heard Jesus say, love one another as I've loved you. You'll, they'll know. He says to the churches in Asia Minor, above all things. Do you know what above all things means in Greek? Above all things. It's very complex. Love one another fervently. Agape. Because that love will cover, you could easily translate, heal. A multitude of sins. I don't know if there are any neurobiologists here today, but neuropsychologists, therapists, but the neurobiological community has been doing a lot of work on the limbic brain in the last 30 years, this side of our brain, where we do relationships. When somebody approaches you this morning, your limbic brain is firing, getting impulses from that human being about who they are, whether they're safe, what you want this conversation to be about. It's where we either know love or we know unlove. The neurobiological community tells us that the limbic brain can literally be physically, biologically damaged by unlove. They say that an infant in the third trimester in the womb can know whether they're loved on the outside of the womb or not. The damage can start there. Here's the beautiful thing. You know what the scientific neurobiological community is telling us? That the limbic brain can be healed. The damage from unlove can be healed. You know how? Through love. Above all things, love one another passionately because that love will heal a multitude of sins. Yikes. What if some of our healing is right here? When we get desperate enough and we realize, I don't want to live with this emptiness anymore. I can't live with this emptiness anymore. And we begin to turn toward one another and say, this is my true self. I'm going to take off my mask. And the other person 
turns toward you and said, here, I'm going to take off my mask too. Guess who's there when two brothers and sisters meet together like that? Jesus told us, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there. So when I turn to Susie and we just start sharing this morning and she said, this is who I am. And I say, this is who I am, the good, the bad, and the not so good. Jesus is right there doing his thing. And Susie might walk away saying, I didn't really have a word for Kevin. No worries. I didn't know what to say to Susie. Were you present? Yes. Then Jesus was there too. And he's the healer. We don't heal anyone. But what if Peter was telling the truth? That we don't have to live empty. We can start by being honest, begin to turn toward our Abba. Watch what he does when we just say, here I am. Vulnerable child of yours, here I am. And what if we began even more? I know new community is an authentic place. What if our authenticity here at new community turned into a deeper vulnerability? with the kinds of things that some of us this morning are saying, well, I share pretty much, but what do you not share? And I'm not suggesting that we need to share everything with everyone. That would be ridiculous and unhealthy. But some, we are only as healthy as our best kept secret. Somewhere in the body of Christ, there's got to be someone that can hear your deepest wound, your deepest pain. If not, it will continue to fester and breed shame and the love of God will be driven away and you will live if you want to call it living, but you will not be able to love because you won't know that you're loved. I remember going to a prison in 1991, seeing a guy who was a, I don't like to label, but this was, this was a bad guy. His ex-wife asked me to go. He'd been He'd committed a very violent sexual crime. I tried to read the Bible to him. He sat there on the other side of the table in shackles, about 2.30, big biceps, tatted up. I'm a fairly big guy, man, this guy scared me. I was afraid he was gonna go across the table, put those shackles across, you know, around my neck. I mean, it was that, that kind of a moment. I had just almost taken my own life a year earlier. I was just living into the love of God, just beginning to learn that he loves me. He loves me. I closed the Bible. There was nothing there for him that day. And I began to weep. Now look, I can only tell you that's what happened. I wasn't even thinking. I don't, looking back, I think it was the love of God for this broken human being. I'm him. I'm him. I got up from around that table he got up, the, the officer was standing right there. I put my arms around this man, his name is Dan. I kissed him on the cheek. No, that was not in my plan. And I must have skipped the day in seminary where they told you what to do in prisons because that would not be high on the list. I kissed him on the cheek. I put my mouth right up next to his ear. Yes, I whispered in his ear, I love you. And then I hugged him, and you know, you know how guys hug, they hug like, boom, <laughs> boom. I didn't boom this guy, I didn't bounce this guy, man. I mean, I hugged him, and I held on. 
And then I went out into the parking lot and I said, what did I just do? Why couldn't I have just said, I'll see you at the hearing. I, God bless you. I felt like such a fool. You know what he did? This is chapter one in the book. He went back to his block and he said this hardened. His dad was beating him when he was eight years old. Came back from Nam, PTSD'd and addicted. God bless the man. Beat his son to a pulp. He was being, being, being breaking and entering at the age of eight. Shooting heroin by 12. Woke up so many times blue. I mean, this guy was a damaged human being. Angry. Lost. No hope. And this broken man, barely beginning to understand the love of Christ. Instinctively, I didn't have a plan. I just did maybe what Jesus would have done, and I held him. And he said, what just happened to me out there? This hardened criminal said, whatever that was, I've got to have more. He was sentenced to 14 to 42. He didn't trust Christ immediately. The hound of heaven pursued him. And 10 years into his prison sentence, he trusted Christ walked out the last eight years without one major ticket in some really hard places in Michigan, the Michigan prison system, and then got out. And the first Sunday he got out, he served communion to the family he damaged with his mess. He served communion. And you say, wow, could we package that? I don't, I don't, there's no book about that. It's the love of God in Christ that is the most powerful commodity in the universe that will trump anything that the enemy perpetrates upon us. And that love desires to heal me and desires to heal you. So what I'd like to do today to close is I wish I could pause time and just literally go around the room and just talk to each one of you and just say, if you'll trust me, would you just tell me some of your story? Tell me a piece of your story. Let me be with you. Jesus is here with us. Let me be with you. Let's start to journey together, but obviously that can't happen. So I want to leave you with an image. I want to give you a picture. And Juan, would you, would you, do, do you, are you afraid of me right now or do you trust me a little bit? Okay, come on up, son. Would you sit right here next to Susie? I met Juan earlier and if you've met Juan, he's got this smile that is quite infectious and incredibly authentic and um, warm. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to do for you, I would like to give you a picture of a Jewish blessing, Sabbath blessing, that a father gives his children at the beginning of Sabbath for practicing families. They do it even to this day. And so at the beginning of Sabbath, the father will call his sons and daughters, and one by one, they'll sit before him and he will pray a blessing over them. Now, one of the blessings, you can see this online, it's online. One of the blessings is probably the number six blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you, give you peace. But you know, fathers will kind of go off script when they really love their sons and daughters. So what I'd like to do today for just a moment is I'd like to give a Sabbath blessing to my son Juan. And... Um, Here's what I'd like you to just be tuned into. What if you had ever received this kind of blessing 
from your mother or your father. I'm not dissing them. I am a dad. I get it. But what if you'd received one of these kinds of blessings even once, let alone every Friday night of your life? From your mom or dad or from anyone in the name of a God who loved you, how might that have impacted your ability to receive the love of God today and then give it away? Secondly, as you're watching me and Juan, what if, what if you could begin to imagine that there's a God in this universe who calls himself your Abba that is literally blessing you like this every moment of every day of our lives. My son, my son Juan, I remember the day that you were born, son. I'd already had three girls. It would have been great to have three more. But I will promise you, it was also good when the doc said, you've got a son. We wanted to name you Juan. You know, that's John, you know, the, the beloved disciple. Wanted you to grow up to be a lover, for your strength to be in the way you loved. I'm so proud to tell you that's what I see in you, son. I see the love of Christ in you. I want you to know that I never loved you more or less than I did that day. And you know what's amazing about that? Is that you hadn't really done anything yet. Now, if you could speak at that point, you might have said, it was pretty tough coming down that birth canal. I understand. That's fair enough. But you were coming out one way or another. You had not performed. You hadn't done a thing to get an accolade for. But I loved you, son, because it's not about your performance. I just love you because you're my son. I delight in you, not because you score the winning touchdown or I'm ashamed of you if you fumble on the goal line. I just love you. Obviously, I, I cheer when you, when you score and when you fumble. I just go, oh, man, I know how that feels. I feel sad for you. But I love you the same both, both times. Now, I don't know what the future holds, son. None of us do. But I want you to know. I know it's not safe out there a lot of times. People love if. They love because. I want you to know that your father just loves and I want you to know whether you become the next president of the United States, wouldn't that be grand to have a lover in the White House? Or if you somehow lose your way and end up where my friend Dan did. Juan, hear this from your dad. I will love you the same. I will pursue you to the White House. I will pursue you to prison. I will pursue you anywhere in between because you will always, always be my beloved son. And I will always, always love you. And so may the Lord bless you. And may the Lord keep you.